Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Ben Hunt, author of Epsilon Theory and co-founder of Second Foundation Partners. Epsilon Theory is a newsletter that examines markets through the lenses of game theory and history. Over 100,000 professional investors and allocators read Epsilon Theory for its fresh perspective and novel insights into market dynamics. In this conversation, Ben Hunt and I talk about understanding how to recognize narratives are everywhere. We also talked about how Wall Street co-opted Bitcoin and turned it into what Ben calls another table at the Wall Street casino. And we discuss the big political risk that we need to be talking about right now. I really enjoyed this insightful conversation with Ben Hunt, and I think you will too. Ben Hunt, author of Epsilon Theory and co-founder of Second Foundation Partners. It is so great to meet you and have you on the show. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I really enjoy following you on Twitter. I'm a subscriber to Epsilon Theory. I love reading your work and um, you are just incredibly insightful and smart. And I'm excited for the folks to get to know you better. So I was hoping maybe we could just kind of start with a bit about your background, you know, give us, uh, you know, the rundown, uh, just, you know, a bit about where you're from, uh, what you've worked on, what you've studied over the years. Sure. No, I've, I've done a lot of different things. Uh, I was a professor for 10 years. I got my PhD up at Harvard uh, in political science, they call it government there, but it's political science everywhere else. And then I was uh, a professor, uh, a tenured professor, uh, but, you know, I always had the entrepreneurial bug. I bet that's like a lot of the uh, viewers and listeners uh, for this, Julia. So I, uh, you know, when you, and you've got that entrepreneurial bug, it really is a bug. It's not a feature. Uh, you can't help yourself. So I was, um, you know, self-taught, computer programmer, coder, and the like. So I left academia to start a uh, very boring software company. But we started that company in March of 2000, the day that literally the day that the, the NASDAQ burst, the NASDAQ bubble burst, we started this company. So it was good to be a boring software company. Uh, so we did pretty well with that. Uh, I sold my interest in that a few years later and uh, really enjoyed the venture capital, uh, private investing side of things. So I did that for a while. And then I uh, joined a asset manager, you know, a large manager of money to start a hedge fund uh, with, a, with, with a friend there. And that got me into the world of investing. And that's where I've been for a long time now. So, uh, you know, the, I'll say the, the, the common thread through all of these things, whether it's the academic work, the, the boring software company, or my work in the investment world, has been my focus on unstructured data. Now, we're all familiar with structured data. That's the stuff you get, you know, in a price chart or, you know, you get on Excel or the like. Unstructured data are the, the words that we read. Uh, the messages that we hear. That's what I've always been focused on, uh, whether it's in academia, you know, political science, trying to understand how the messages that governments uh, promulgate, right? How do they try to, to, to influence public opinion to go to war? Uh, the software company I started was trying to understand unstructured data in the form of 
schematics and parts diagrams and again, very boring stuff, but very useful stuff. And the investment world or my investment efforts have been trying to understand how a Fed speech, a uh, CNBC you know, program, how do all these messages, how do they influence our behavior as investors? And so that's the common thread. Uh, that's what I do about, gosh, it's amazing how time flies, but eight years, no, nine years ago now, 2013, I started writing about, in my research interests, what I like to call narrative and its impact on politics and economics. That became the blog Epsilon Theory. You know, I was writing that to about 100 hedge fund clients. Um, it just, word of mouth, it just spread and spread. So now we've got you know, well over 100,000 people who read Epsilon Theory. But that's what it is. It's about uh, unstructured data, the patterns in unstructured data, we'll call them narratives, and the way they impact us both in politics and in markets. I love that. I love the diversity of your background too, just from like tech and academia and investing. And, can't keep and, a job. And, uh, but Julia, I'm, I'm serious when I say it's a, it's a, it's a bug, not a feature. Cause I I'm, love it. I'm sure you've got a lot of listeners and viewers who are afflicted with the same thing, right? I mean, it's such a big world and there's a lot of stuff to explore. So it's uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's explore this notion. Um, just let's explore this idea of unstructured data. I, I briefly worked at a tech startup founded by some, you know, top AI scientists. I often heard them talk about unstructured data, but maybe for like the lay person listening, um, when you mentioned unstructured data and you gave the example of like a Fed speech or a CNBC um, a story that comes out, help us kind of ex- understand unstructured data as it relates to markets and the economy. Sure, and, and I'll do this by giving a totally different example. I'll give a, an example from television. Right? So I watch a lot of TV. Some people say they don't have time for TV. I say you make time for TV. But the, uh, the, I'll, I'll talk about the show Law & Order. Right? So Law & Order has had over 600 episodes filmed so far. I'm just talking about the baseline Law & Order, not even all the spinoffs. But so over 600 episodes. There are only a dozen scripts. 600 episodes, there are only a dozen scripts. Every episode of Law and Order follows the same three-act play structure. In fact, every movie you've ever seen out of Hollywood over the last 40 years has a three-act structure. So what I would say is, you know, type in any movie you like plus three-act structure, Google that, and you'll see what I mean by the structure within unstructured data. Unstructured data is a story. It's a... Like I say, it's the, the words we, we read, it's the, the, the messages we hear, the television shows we watch, and the structure in all of these things is a narrative, a script, a story arc, right? Every one of those 600 Law & Order episodes has the same story arc, where I promise you at the, about the two-thirds mark of Act 1, you will be introduced to what seems to be a tangential character. That tangent by tangential, I mean, it'll be the neighbor of the victim. It'll be a family member of the, uh, perpe- the presumed perpetrator. In every episode, all 600 episodes, 
early in act three, that tangential character will be reintroduced as now a primary character. Everyone, every single episode follows that same structure. And once you start looking for these story arcs, the same story that we tell ourselves over and over and over again, whether it's in a movie, whether it's in a television show, whether it's in an investment thesis, whether it's in a, you know, a voting situation, once you start looking for those underlying narratives and story arcs, you'll start to see them everywhere. And so what our research is all about is, is you know, it's, there are more than 12 of those story arcs or scripts in, in markets and investing. There are more than 12, but actually it's not a lot more than 12, right? It's a finite number. And, and each of those story arcs or scripts has specific words and language that's associated with it. There's a life cycle. That's what it means to be an arc. There's a beginning and a middle and an end to it. This is what Wall Street does. Wall Street and Hollywood are both in the business of telling us stories. We recognize it as a fictional story when it's Hollywood. We don't recognize it when it's Wall Street. And that's the research to understand and to try to measure where you are in the life cycle of a story arc about a company, about a sector, about an industry, about a, a national market, about an asset class. We see these story arcs everywhere once you start looking for them. And now we have the technology to actually try to measure them. So that's what I mean by unstructured data. All it is is it's the stories that we hear. But what's difficult is that unlike when we're watching television or watching a movie, we don't recognize that the stories we're listening to from CNBC or Bloomberg or the political stories we hear from Fox or CNN, we don't recognize them as stories. Once you do that, the whole world opens up for you to try to understand the similarities between the storylines that we hear over and over again and where we are currently in the life cycle of one of these stories and how these story arcs can end because they all have an ending. Yeah, there is so much unpacked there. And this is why I'm so excited to have you on. And you mentioned that we start to see these narratives or stories everywhere. And you just mentioned, yep. um, you mentioned some of the uh, financial media and some of the mainstream media and that um, often we don't recognize them as stories, but once you do, it really opens things up. So a couple of questions. Well, why, why don't people recognize them as stories? Why do you think that is? And what are the implications of that? You're smiling. <laughs> Let's talk about no, it. No, it's, it's a great question. And, and the, the reason we don't recognize them as stories is that, well, I'll tell, I'll I'll tell a story of my own, right? So uh, David Foster Wallace, he told this story when he was a, it was a graduation address at a, at a college. You know, David Foster Wallace, the novelist and, you know, sadly departed now. But uh, as the story goes, these two young fish were swimming along uh, in the lake and an older fish comes swimming by the other direction. And the older fish goes as, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish, says, whatever, grandpa, fine. And they swim on. And then one of the, the younger fish looks over the other one and says, what the hell is water? <laughs> right, right. We don't recognize that they're stories because this is the water in which we swim. The human animal 
is, and this is, you know, technically speaking, a social animal. And there are only a few species on Earth that are true social animals. And uh, frankly, most of them are insects, right? So the termite, the bee, and the ant, and the human being are all four social animals. It's no accident those are probably the four most successful, you know, animal species on Earth, right? At least multicellular animal species on Earth. And it's no accident because what it means to be a social animal is that we swim in an ocean of communicating with each other. That, that you know, ants, bees, termites, they swim in an ocean of chemical pheromones. They're constantly communicating with each other through the language of these chemicals that they emit and then receive, and then they are hardwired to respond to. For us, it's language. For us, it's words. For us, it is unstructured data. It's, it's the words we hear, the words we read. We think we're immune to them. We think we're, you know, but, but in truth, you know, we can no more resist a speech by a Fed chair then an ant can resist the pheromones of its queen. We, we really are biologically evolved to respond to language, to unstructured text, when it's delivered to us from a position of authority. That's, we, we, I keep using this phrase literally hardwired because I really do mean it. We have neural clusters that are designed to recognize a position of authority the language that is then transmitted to us, and then we give great credence to that communication. I'll give you a great example, right? So this is uh, probably the most popular note we've written on, on, on Epsilon Theory. It was actually a note talking about a, uh, a phenomenon that, uh, of all people, Michael Crichton popularized. So if you don't remember Michael Crichton, he invented the scientific thriller, right? So Michael Crichton wrote Jurassic Park, right? He, he was the, he wrote Andromeda Strain. He wrote Westworld. You know, every scientific thriller, he invented the genre. And then he moved to Hollywood to make movies. He had a lot of interesting friends. One of his friends was um, uh, guy by the name of physicist of all things, Murray Gelman. Last name is G-E-L-L-M-A-N-N, Murray Gelman. And uh, Gelman was most famous for discovering, or at least being the first to observe, the quark and to name the quark, you know, this subatomic particle that makes up things like protons and neutrons and, 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 and the like. So they were friends and they were talking one day, they were talking about some articles that they had read recently. Uh, and uh, Gelman said, you know, I was, I was reading the, I think it was the Hollywood Reporter or something about these, this movie. It sounds really interesting. And, and Michael Ryan said, oh, no, no, that the, the, the newspaper article got it all completely wrong. Are you kidding me? That was, that was terrible. But let me ask you, Murray, I was reading an article about physics in the, in the, the New York Times something about, you know, the CERN collider or something, something like that. That sounded really interesting. And Gelman said, oh, my God, no, that, that, that article got it completely wrong. It was terrible. And they both realized that when, 
it was a subject matter that they knew a lot about. And I bet, again, every one of your viewers or listeners that has a similar experience, you work for a company, let's say, and there's an article printed about your company in the local newspaper, uh, or even the, you know, the Wall Street Journal, any, any newspaper, any publication. You read that article, and it's a subject you know a lot about. I mean, you really, you know the situation. And you read that article, and you go, oh, my God, they've got it completely wrong. Michael Crichton says it's, it's, they, they don't just get the facts wrong. They get causality wrong. You, you know, they, they get everything mixed up. It's just, and, and you read that article, and, and your immediate reaction is, good Lord, how, how do we get a retraction? We have to get a retraction for this, this article. But here's the phenomenon. And this is why they call it Gelman amnesia. You turn the page, and it's an article about something that you're interested in, but you don't know a lot about. You read that article, and you go, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> right? So that's we so don't true. recognize it. Yeah. It is the water in which we swim. And the only time we recognize it the only time we recognize it is when the story that's being presented to us is something we really know, that we've lived, that we've experienced directly. And then we realize, oh, my God, they're just making this up. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just making this up to sound good. But all of us, again, are hardwired so that we turn the page, we search something else on the browser, and we read that article and we go, hmm. That's interesting. I like that, the Gelman amnesia effect. And I like that you mentioned Michael Crichton. I love his books and Law and Order. I feel like we have a a lot in common on those things. There you go. Exactly. um, I've loved Jurassic Park books. It's it's thing. I'm obsessed. Okay. So let me ask you this then about your, I'm just curious about your own approach to media or content. Like what do you do for your own content diet? Do you watch the mainstream media? Like what do you do? Yeah, I I think I read and I watch everything that everyone else does. I'd like to think that I read it differently. And what I mean by that is, and and look, this is always a process of two steps forward and one step back. This has been my professional career. For 30 years, I've been studying the way in which language is used to create stories, even when we don't recognize it's a story, right? But I've been doing it for 30 years. And I'll get, I'll get wrapped into a story, sure, you know, the same as anybody else. I really will, right? Because, again, we can't help ourselves. But what I try to do, and not always successful, but this is what I always try to do, is I always try to maintain some sort of critical distance between myself and what I'm reading. That doesn't mean I'm, I think, oh, it's, you know, they're making it up or, you know, I, there's, I, it's not that I try to apply my own story arc to it. Oh, this is the mainstream media. They're trying to, there's a conspiracy here to cover up the real truth, right? From over here. That, that's not what I mean. What I mean is maintain a critical distance. To ask yourself, to always ask yourself the question, why am I reading this now? Why am I reading this now? Because the, the, the fact is, you know, you'll read an article about Einstein, right? 
there, there's, there, there's always, I, I chose that because that was the example that Michael Crichton gave in his speech about the Gelmont amnesia. And there's always an article that could be written. Why am I reading this article now? Because there is a, I'm not going to call it, there's not, it's not an ulterior motive, but there's always motivation behind why a story is being written. And the manner in which the story is written. We can recognize this pretty easily when it's really over the top. We call it clickbait. Right? We're saying, oh, you know, they're writing that story and they've got that image, and they've got that headline because they want you to click. Right? They want to capture your engagement. What I'm saying is that everything you read has that element to it. And to maintain a critical distance, I think it's always very healthy to ask yourself, why am I reading this now? Because, you know, it, it's not that you should not read it, and it's not that you shouldn't, you should fight the Fed. That's not what I'm saying right, at all. What I'm saying is that when you read or listen to, you know, Jay Powell will give a speech, right, or you read the transcript later. I'm not saying you should react to it as in, oh my God, this is terrible, this is wrong, he's awful. What I am saying though is that you shouldn't take it into your heart. You need to maintain a critical distance as an outsider looking at it and just asking yourself, why are these words organized like they are? What is the story this is trying to tell? What is the larger narrative that's trying to be that this is all part of? And I find that that, just creating that sort of distance, that's what we need to, to, to survive in this environment. Because, look, I'll, I like to play poker, right? So there, there's an old poker saying that if you don't know who the, if you sit down and play poker at a table and you don't know who the sucker is within the first 30 minutes, the sucker is you. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not saying you don't play poker. I'm not saying you don't engage in the media or you just, you know, you know, ignore all this stuff. I'm saying just don't be the sucker. Don't be the sucker at the table. And that's what I think having maintaining a critical distance can do for you. It keeps you from being the sucker at the table. I love that. I feel, isn't that from a movie? I feel like that's from a movie. Anyway. Um, there are lots of great poker there's movies. There's so right? many great yeah, yeah. ones. It's a yeah, good yeah, one. Yeah. I feel like, I want to say it's rounders, but I don't know. I'm probably wrong. Um, I love that. Um, you, you have to assume that anything smart that was said about poker has got to be in rounders. Right? Yeah. Um, you mentioned about like kind of surviving in this environment. Um, like you kind of have to give yourself that critical distance. Can we kind of tease out like the environment that we're in? And as someone who's, gosh, studied so many things for many, many years, uh, talk to me about the kind of the evolution of the environment and how we got here or what is the assessment sure. of our environment? So by surviving, I mean making your way in an environment where everyone is in on the act. And what I mean by that is, and it didn't used to be this way, we can track how it's developed over time. What I mean by everyone is in on the act, I mean that everyone who is in front of a camera, everyone who's behind a microphone, they're trying to create a narrative, a story arc, one that benefits their interests. I'm trying to create a very, you know, an understandable story arc for my research interests because I, I mean, I'd, I'd like for people to, you know, 
think I'm right. And uh, I, you know, I, I do think I'm right, but it, you know, I, I'm trying to tell it in a way that engages people. Every politician knows this. Every central banker knows this. Every CEO knows this today. That the way to improve the multiple on your stock is not to get another, you know, half turn of leverage through some, you know, operational efficiency. No. The way to get a higher multiple on your stock is to create an effective story or narrative about how your company is growing and, you know, why the future is bright and, and, and the like. That's how you create a good stock. Some CEOs are magnificent at this. Some CEOs are terrible at this. What has changed over the last 10 years is the ones who are terrible at this, who can't tell a narrative to save their lives. They can be the best operator in the world. Doesn't matter anymore, right? They're, they've gone the way of the, of the dodo bird. It's the same with bankers. It's the same with politicians. Today, everyone is in on the act. And what that means is that they're all using their words for effect. Right? They're not, they're, they're not, when Jay Powell is getting up there and giving a speech, he's not necessarily communicating what he actually believes. He's communicating the words that he thinks will drive a specific response in the listener. And this is a tinfoil hat conspiracy thing. This is what they mean by forward guidance, right? This is what they mean by communication policy, to use their words to try to shape and impact investor behavior. Mm-hmm. So everyone's in on the act. It, we've seen a real sea change structurally as well through, I, I think, really two things. The first is the growth of 24-7 news channels. I'm making the little finger quote sign here if you're just listening to this, uh, by which I mean not just financial news. It's not just the, the growth of CNBC. Bloomberg, Fox Business, but also mean in the, I'll call it in the, you know, political news. So CNN, MSNBC, Fox, all the other, you know, ones that are out there trying to do this. These 24-7, again, quote unquote, news channels, this is a relatively new phenomenon, you know, a little over a decade old. Um, I mean, older than that, but the real growth of these has been over the last, call it 12 to 15 years. The reason this is important is that there's not enough news in the sense of new information to carry a 24-7 content schedule. So instead, what you have, and this is 99% of the content, certainly in the um, market 24-7 news channels, but I, I believe it's also the case with the political news channels, you have what I like to call as fiat news. The same way you have fiat money, you can also have fiat news. It's opinion presented as fact. Opinion presented as fact. And I say 99% of what you'll see on CNBC is somebody getting up there and tell you their opinion about a stock, a sector, or what's going on. It's, It's their opinion presented as news. And where the words, the choice of words is designed to tell a pleasing story for you to say, 
huh, that's interesting. Yeah, hmm, makes sense. Yeah, should pay attention to that. Hmm. This is such an annoying, and it's not just, you know, the, the television stations. Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post. These are all now 24-7 news outlets, right? It's not just the printed newspaper once a day anymore. It's 24-7 articles and coverage and the like, for which it is impossible to have actual information. And so more and more of the content becomes opinion presented as news. That's what drives engagement. There's been a sea change in media over the, you know, starting 20 years ago, but it's really accelerated over the last 12 to 15 years. That's structural change number one, combined with the fact that everyone's in on the act. There's no shortage of people who will say something to the Washington Post or the New York Times, opinion presented as fact, who will get on CNBC or Bloomberg, opinion presented as fact. It's everywhere, right? Think of all the talking heads you have on CNN. There's there's no news, it's people telling you how to interpret the news. The fav- the, my favorite graphic of all this, I, I, uh, and again, you can Google this, type in the name of any famous person, particularly a politician, plus finger pointing, and you'll get a picture of that politician wagging his or her finger at you. Yeah. Now think about that. It, yeah. you know, nobody does that in real life. I mean, I can imagine I'm having a conversation with my wife and I start shaking my finger at her. I, I mean, I wouldn't live. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't live to see the next dog, right? But I'm telling you, once you start looking for it, you'll see it everywhere. It's people presenting opinion to you as fact, telling you how to think about the news, not the news itself. You combine those two things, 24-7 news channels, everyone is in on the act wanting to create and present a narrative. And you put the third piece of this together with the growth of social media so that Again, for people listening, I'm holding up my, my iPhone. We, we do this to ourselves. We willingly open up a window into messaging and allow these messages from others, these narratives from others, to wash over us. We choose to do it ourselves through social media. And you put that all together, and that's the world we have to survive. Gotcha. Again, more to even unpack there. I, Ben, I've heard you mention, um, and I want to explore it with you, and I want you to explain it for folks. I've heard you talk about weaponized narratives. What yep. does that mean? Well, you know, there's this idea in uh, virology, right? You know, the study in, you know, working with viruses and bacteria is called gain of function. The idea that, that you can tinker with the DNA, RNA, I guess, of a, of a virus, you can tinker with it. And so you can force it to have functionality beyond what it had in the wild, right? That you can take a, a, a virus, take it into the lab, do gain of function research and transform its genetic code so that it's, you know, whatever, whatever new function you want that virus to have for good or for ill. Of course, the main concern 
you, as you can imagine, with gain of function research in microbiology is that this is how you weaponize a bacteria or a virus. You tinker with it in the lab so that it becomes more virulent, more harmful to people. Well, exactly the same thing happens with narratives and stories. Exactly the same thing happens here. The words that are chosen, the grammars that are employed, the structure of the unstructured data that is presented to us is A-B tested, it's designed, it's evolved to do two things, to impact us without us knowing that it's a story and to hit our neural clusters that are designed to respond to a specific storyline. That's what weaponization of narratives means. There, there are yeah, 3,000 years ago, you know, Socrates would have called this sophistry. And so none of this, none of what I'm describing is new. The use of our words and the choice of words and the choice of arguments and examples and the like to try to emotionally appeal to the other person and to get them to go, huh, that's interesting. It, it, this, is, this has been going on for since human beings first interacted with each other, right? Effective politicians have always done this, this trick for thousands of years. You know, effective salesmen for thousands of years have known about word choice, argument structure, sophistry, whatever you want to call it, to try to change behavior. What's different today is that with the rise of social media, always on social media, with the rise of always on uh, media dissemination, with the rise of everyone being in on the act, every politician, every CEO, every central banker, every person behind a camera, effort to try to weaponize our words has never been more focused and more powerful, right? And Facebook's the perfect example about this. I mean, the, the, the algorithms that are used to promote certain news items to you to drive engagement are specifically, you know, it's an evolution of language that would happen normally and has happened for thousands of years. But today we've got a laboratory and we can call it Facebook where the tinkering is done to accelerate that sort of gain of function work. And again, this isn't tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. This is what Facebook does. This is what Google does. This is what, you know, every aspect of big media, big tech and big politics do. They try to adjust the words and the stories they're telling you to have more and more of a hold on you without you noticing that it's a story, without you recognizing that it's the water in which we swim. Gotcha. Okay. I'm going to 
shift gears a little bit here and I want to explore some examples with you because I think that could also just help the folks listening um, just of the way narratives kind of work. And um, one that you brought up recently was Bitcoin. I know you've written a piece in praise mm-hmm. of Bitcoin. You've talked yeah. about the narratives and maybe your views. There. Can we just get a quick update from you on, you know, what's going on there? So, uh, yeah, you're right. I wrote this, this note and it's in praise of Bitcoin because I really admire the art of Bitcoin, right? The, there's an elegance to it. It's clever. It's ingenious. It's, um, it's really fascinating. It is good art. And that is, frankly, my highest praise. It's my highest praise. What I react very negatively towards, though, is the way that Bitcoin is then repackaged in a story to what I like to call Bitcoin, right, with jazz hands, where uh, there's a narrative created around Bitcoin. Oh, this is a hedge against inflation. Or this is a, um, you know, this is going to be, you know, corporate adoption of Bitcoin and number go up. Uh, Oh, this is, you know, this is going to be the future of money. These are intentionally constructed stories around Bitcoin itself that are used by, for the last two years, Wall Street to try to drive transactional flows in Bitcoin, right? It's the securitization of Bitcoin. This has all happened before, right? So, you know, with the development of securities around gold, particularly the ETF, the development of the GLD ETF, it became possible to securitize physical gold. And so the story of gold changed from being a thing into itself to being just another table at the Wall Street casino. And what I believe so strongly is the same thing has happened with Bitcoin. It's been transformed into just another table at the Wall Street casino with all the revolutionary power of a, you know, a tattoo on your upper arm. you know, a, a, a symbol, a story of rebellion, but where it really is, it's just another security. Like GLD is to gold, so are all the securitizations of Bitcoin. Again, what I like to call Bitcoin, jazz hands. Bitcoin TM, I can also write about and call it. It's the difference between that Bitcoin TM, the story of Bitcoin, as it is presented by Wall Street versus, I I think, the OG, the original, you know, interest for me, at least in Bitcoin, as being separate from Wall Street and the world of money. Governments have no interest in banning Bitcoin. None. What they have an overwhelming interest in doing, though, is co-opting Bitcoin, right, in neutering Bitcoin. And that's what I think's happened. I think I think that has absolutely already happened, where you know it's been it becomes an exercise in number go up, number go down. 
the winners from this are the same winners as they always are. It's the flow, not the price. And Wall Street is all about flow. It's creating stories, these narrative arcs we see happening, repeating themselves over and over and over again. Right? This time they're applying it to Bitcoin exactly the same way they applied it to gold. You securitize it. You create a pleasant sounding narrative around it. You play that for as long as it can. Then you create another narrative. You keep it going because you're in the business of flow. That's what Wall Street is. That's where the real money is. It's not in price. It's in flow. And that's what Wall Street is. Like Hollywood, it's a story machine. But instead of a you know, $8 movie ticket, I'm dating myself there right there. I know. I know movie tickets are <laughs> a lot more expensive now. than $8, right? <laughs> but instead of a movie ticket for a very finite amount of money, Wall Street's business is trying to capture the flows of, you know, all of your investment income. That's their business. So do you think Wall Street ruined Bitcoin? You're, you're saying it's another table at the Wall Street casino. They co-opted. Do you think they ruined it? Absolutely. When sure did that happen? Like, when do you think it happened? Well, the main co-option of Bitcoin by Wall Street happened in, call it mid-2020. And it's no accident. That's when the price goes up. And what I mean by the, 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 the co-opting of it, it is that, oh, here we're going to set up custodians. Here we're going to securitize it. You know, we're going to have exchanges where you can trade it. And you're not, you're not owning and trading Bitcoin. Right, you're 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 create you're you're trading a symbol, a three-letter symbol BTC, in the same way that gold was co-opted in the early 2000s with the, you know, the creation of the GLD gold ETF. It's Wall Street is designed to do two things, and when I say Wall Street, all financial services. From today to the dawn of time, every financial innovation is to do one of two things. It is to securitize something, that is to replace a thing with pieces of paper that can be chopped up and sold more easily than the thing. So that's one thing that Wall Street does, or all financial services do, is to securitize something. The other thing they do, and often goes hand in hand, is to apply leverage to something, to allow people to borrow money to participate in the transaction. That's it. That is what all of financial innovation, all of Wall Street is designed to do, to create stories around either the securitization of a thing or the leverage applied to a thing. That is it. That's all there is. But it's, it's also not like you're, you're not saying that there's no value to Bitcoin, though. No, absolutely not. I'm saying the value of Bitcoin is in its value as good art, right? And its ability to inspire and its ability to make people think about long time preferences, its ability to think about autonomy. Oh, my God. It's, it's, it's amazing art to get to inspire those kind of thoughts and beliefs in people. Just like good art inspires people to do anything. What, sorry, and to finish that thought, there is always value in good art. Always. 
Where I think this goes off the rails, though, is in people thinking that there is some sort of intrinsic value in the securitization of art, that there is some sort of up into the right arrow that goes with the application of leverage to good art. There is not. At the core of good art, like Bitcoin, is a story, a story that inspires, a story that excites. That's what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is not a cash-flowing item. It's not, right? It is, is, and it's not a store of value. It's it's, It's not any of these things. It's an idea that inspires, it's art, and has value. But to say that, oh, you know, we've, we've, there's, there's some fundamentals to Bitcoin in an economic sense, that's a story. And to put a multiple on that story, that's a whole nother story. So is there value to Bitcoin? Absolutely. Is there value to Bitcoin, the securitized version of this that you can buy and sell on an exchange? There's a value to it in the same way that there's a value to any, you know, three-letter ticker that you want to buy and sell. Um, It's going to be driven by narrative, and that's a hard game to play. If you want to play it, fine, but maintain a critical distance. Don't take it into your heart. Don't take the story into your heart because that's what ruins people. It ruins people politically. It ruins people economically when they fail to maintain that critical distance, when they fail to recognize it's a game I'm playing, when they fail to recognize that someone is telling me a story that's when you become the sucker at the table. Let's talk about politics. Um, This was something that came up in a recent note of yours. You talked about it at your office hours recently, this kind of Mm -hmm. political risk that's out there and this kind of predicament that we're in. I would love for you to share with the folks your kind of views um, as it relates to kind of what's playing out in our political landscape. Well, I don't think it's contentious to say that there's a polarization that's been happening in the American electorate for a lot of years now. And you, you know, there the Pew Research Foundation, PEW, does does really good work on this. They've got a, a data series, you know, asking people the same questions. This goes back, you know, well, you can get some proxies on this, you know, going back into the 1930s or actually, I think even a little before then, uh, but you can have these kind of direct polling questions that have been done going back, you know, 15, 20 years. And there's no question that the American electorate, if you're on the left, if you identify as a Democrat, the majority of Democrats have moved to the left. And similarly, the majority of Republicans have moved to the right on this kind of typical left-right uh, dimension. And so what that means then is that if you look at the shape of the electorate as as a whole, 
go back 20 years and it's basically, you know, a, you know, a bell curve where we've got roughly a single peak of electric preferences. There's a majority in the center. That's all I'm saying. There's a majority in the center. And you would see this in any sort of, of election process where, you know, you're to get, you get nominated by the Democratic Party, you get nominated by the Republican Party, and then immediately whoever was nominated would start rushing to the center, trying to appeal to an overall majority of people because that's where the majority was in the middle. You no longer have that distribution. Their distribution is, all right, $10 word alert, right? It's called bimodal meaning it's like a camel's back, a two-humped camel's back. You've got one majority over here, and then there's fewer people, fewer and fewer people in the middle, and then there's another majority over here. Now, why is that important? The reason it's important is that when you have a bimodal distribution like that, there are a majority of Democrats who are outside of the overlap between Republicans and Democrats. There are a majority of Republicans that are outside of the overlap between Republicans and Democrats. As a result, you can't get a centrist candidate elected. You can't get centrist policies to stick. What you get at best is gridlock. And at worst, this is really what we're seeing a lot more of, is depending which party is you know, controlling institutional levers at any point in time, you get policies that are way to the left and then go way to the right and then go way to the left and back again. What's happened even more recently though, and I, this is not my effort at, at ascribing blame, but the reality is at this point, and you know, Biden's Philly speech two weeks ago was important in this. Today, a majority of Democrat voters think that the Republicans are trying to destroy democracy. And a majority of Republican voters believe that Democrats are trying to destroy democracy, destroy the country. When that happens, Electorally speaking, you pass an event horizon, right? So that this is a, another physics term, use it for black holes. When you get close enough to that gravity, even light can escape it. Nothing can escape the event horizon once you cross it. And that's what I think has happened with American politics. That there's common knowledge, meaning everyone knows that everyone knows, that the other side is trying to steal an election, that the other side is trying to subvert democracy. And when that happens, when everyone knows that everyone knows that's true, even if you don't really believe it, the rational thing to do is to act as if you do. So what I, I think we're looking at, till we have a constitutional crisis, is that The Democrats will not accept an outcome 
whether that's an electoral outcome or a judicial outcome, they will not accept that as legitimate. And similarly with a majority of Republicans will not accept an electoral or judicial outcome as legitimate. And when no outcome is perceived as legitimate by a majority of the other side, our system doesn't work. It does not work. And you know, Jan 6 is a, is a manifestation of that. My point is that there are more manifestations of that to come. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm not trying to argue who started it, who's to blame. I have my own personal views. Doesn't matter. Well, I'm saying this is what is today. And we need to prepare ourselves and protect ourselves, frankly, from, I think, the pervasive political conflict and crisis that is going to come out of this. Like political collapse. And you say prepare ourselves, protect ourselves. Yeah. What, what does that look like? What does that mean? It means finding people, I like to call it your pack, finding people who, are, who do not treat you as a means to an end, who are not your friends because they want your vote, who are not your friends because they want you to work for their company, people who associate with you, with you because you are an autonomous human being, who are an end to yourself, and they demand that you treat them the same way. It's harder and harder to find your pack today because we are intentionally, I really mean this, intentionally severed from our human connections by, again, 24-7 news, social media, every leader trying to provoke, promote a narrative. We are treated as a means to an end, whether that is in our vote or in our investment dollar. And what we have to do is find other human beings who we can trust and who will trust us not to treat each other as a means to an end. It's a bottoms-up process. I don't think there is a top-down political party solution that can be applied here. I think what we have to do is, is we have to try to shield ourselves as much as we can from the top-down conflict to come by finding our pack. And um, I say it's never been harder to do. We are intentionally dissuaded from connecting with human beings like that. But it's never been more important. So that's what I mean. Are you optimistic that we can get there? Um, long-term, yes. Short-term, no, right? I, I think we are in this, again, a, again, $10 word, equilibrium in terms of what our political environment is. And that's not a mean reverting phenomenon. It doesn't just get better on its own. It only improves once there is a crisis and a conflict. Whether that crisis and conflict deteriorates into actual violence and separation or whether it works itself out with a new compact, a new dimension on which we can have a center. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful it's the latter, 
but I want to be prepared for the former. And to prepare for that, I think we need to make real human connections with other real human beings. And that means uh, it's the hardest thing in the world. You know, we used to have our families and our extended families with those built-in packs. But today, look, I, I mean, we all have this experience, right? Where we've got a family member who has fallen prey to the weaponized narratives of either the left or the right. I don't know. I mean, I've got a family where I've got people who've gone past the event horizon, right, of both. Some family members on one side, family members on the other, and they're lost. They're lost. And what I'm saying is that we have to find and protect ourselves from becoming lost. And the way to do that is to make these true human connections and to treat each other with uh, clear eyes, but also with an open heart. I think that's a really good um, place to end, like just human connection and treating each other with a real open heart. And gosh, Ben, after talking to you, I have a million more questions. I definitely want to have you back on in the future, but you know, I would love to just kind of pass it back to you. And do you have any parting thoughts for the folks uh, listening? And also go ahead and plug where they can find you. Sure. Well, the, the, the finding me is easy. It's, it's Epsilon Theory uh, online, on Twitter. You know, we've got tons of stuff free to read. And, you know, that's we're trying to create a, a pack, a group of uh, online truth seekers, right, where, you know, it's a true big tent. And our motto, and this is where I'll leave people, it's from, well, it was a fantastic book, an okay movie, and a great TV series, uh, Friday Night Lights. And, you know, the, the catchphrase there, it's about high school football in a little Texas town, which is to mean it's about life. And if you recall, the catchphrase is clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. And I really do believe that. And that is what makes me really optimistic about the future. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Well, Ben Hunt, author of Epsilon Theory and co-founder of Second Foundation Partners. I've really enjoyed this conversation and learning from you. And I'm sure folks learned a lot as well. So I just appreciate you being so generous with your time. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Take care.